A reading from Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significantly than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of a god, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should, no should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus, Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say to you, say about you, and much to judge, but he who has sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you lifted up the Son of Man, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The Gospel of Christ.
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in this sacred time and space, we ask that we would give room for your spirit, that our ears would be attentive, our hearts receptive to your words to us this morning, and in all that is said and done, may you alone be glorified. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I wasn't going to make any preliminary comments before diving right into our sermon this morning, but I had the privilege of sitting up here as most people came in to the service, and it, you couldn't see because of the mask, but I had this huge, stupid grin on my face watching all of you come in, and I realized how desperately much I love you all. And it's so good to see you again. So, back to the sermon. The subtitle of our sermon series from the Gospel of John is Encountering the King of a New Creation. The primary goal of our sermons then is to help us to know Jesus more fully, more deeply. But to know another is no easy task. Often there are wide swaths of our own being about which we are largely unaware. And we know less about those we love than we would like to or probably should know. So to encounter, to know someone who lived 2,000 years ago in a very different world from our own is fraught with obstacles. One of the things I learned as a student of history. Yet we do believe that we can in some sense encounter and know Jesus in a meaningful and a transformative way. That encountering and knowing takes place in a number of ways, not least of which is by reading and seeking to understand the stories about his life in the Gospels. But encountering Jesus is much more than knowledge and information. One of the fascinating things about my years in seminary in a slow-motion train wreck sort of way was how so many biblical students seemed to lose their faith in the course of their studies. Now, I have a few ideas about why that might have been the case. But the point for this morning is that meaningfully encountering Jesus is considerably more than accumulating information about his life. But it is never less than that. So we study the life of Jesus as an important part of our encounter with him trusting that the Holy Spirit will transform that information into a living encounter at the core of our beings. So far in our study of John's Gospel, we've encountered Jesus in a number of different ways in chapters 4 through 7. Each has been fascinating, challenging, sometimes surprising, maybe even a little bit shocking. But if all we have learned is information, we have only just begun on the path to encountering this king of a new creation. Our reading today presents to us not one, but two important insights into who Jesus was and is. The first is quite obvious. It jumps out at us for a number of reasons. And I'm sure we've all heard any number of sermons about it over the years. As a matter of fact, I preached on this just over two years ago. I refer, of course, to Jesus' declaration, I am the light of the world. 
The other equally important and connected insight surfaces at the end of our reading. It's preached and taught about much less often because it often is hard for us to reconcile with our Christology and Trinitarian theology, not to mention our understanding of the nature of greatness, leadership, and authority. An understanding, by the way, largely shaped by the culture around us. And I speak of Jesus' declaration of his subservience to God the Father. In verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, he, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, there might be a number of reasons why this might unsettle us, and, and we will look at those shortly. But first, let's dive into the, what appears to be the relatively comfortable part of our passages. Beginning in verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, this was not a random saying. Jesus didn't wake up that morning and think, well, this is as good a morning as any to talk about being the light. As Orvin mentioned in his sermon a couple of weeks ago, the events and teachings of chapters 7 and 8 of John's Gospel are specifically within the context of the celebration of Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a commemoration of the 40 years of wilderness wandering after the exodus from Egypt. At one point in this celebration, in the court of women, the women where Jesus made this particular declaration, numerous lamps and candles were lit in a spectacular festival of lights. This was to commemorate the memory that in the wilderness the people were led by the pillar of fire at night, which was understood to be the manifest presence of God. And there are numerous biblical references to God as light. In addition... In the rabbinic tradition, this phrase, light of the world, was used in reference to Torah and the temple. The Torah and the temple were a light to the nations. So here, in this moment in time, Jesus was saying none of these things, not these lamps and the memories they evoke, not even the temple or Torah itself are the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Now, those of us brought up in the church have heard this so often that it no longer has even a shred of the shock value it would have had to Jesus' listeners. And I'm reminded of the, reminded of the famous C.S. Lewis quote from Mere Christianity. It bears extended quotation. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsenses about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. With that caution in mind, let's take a quick look at Jesus' proclamation, I am the light of the world. I mentioned just a few weeks ago about the significance of Jesus' use of the phrase, I am. It was a deliberate reference to the holiest, most intimate, the most secret name of God. 
and most specifically the story of Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, which is how God self-identified to Moses. And it was a not-so-subtle claim to some form of divine status. Jesus knew it, and most of the people around him knew it. I am the light. Light is a wonderful image for God, isn't it? But what can it mean? Instinctively, our minds jump to the idea that the light refers to illumination, specifically the illumination of our understanding, and that's often how we use the word, isn't it? Something that was hidden or obscured by a lack of light is made clear by having the light shone on it. Psalm 119, verse 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And there is much truth in this understanding of Jesus' this kind of light. A corresponding image to the light of God is that of guidance. Our verse continues, He who follows me will not walk in darkness. And again, Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God gives guidance to our lives. He direction for the next step. And yet, it's not always that simple, is it? Much of our lives of faith are clouded by not knowing. And our next step is shrouded in uncertainty or completely hidden from our view. Often enough, if we've expressed this kind of uncertainty or concern to others, we will have been told that the problem is our lack of intimacy with God, that if we were closer to God, we would understand God's will for our lives with greater clarity. The way forward would become clear. Yes, it is true that upon closer reflection, both you and I could be closer to God than we are. Certainly, we should intensify our pursuit of God whenever we don't understand or our next step is beyond our sight. But drawing closer to God may give no greater insight into the issue. It may not shed any more light on the path before us. Sometimes the closer we draw to God, the less we are sure about in a rational sense. Sometimes what God is trying to teach us is that the only clarity and certainty is that God loves us, so much so that Jesus died for us. Because God desires for us the kind of faith that can take the next step into the dark, knowing not whether we stand on a straight and safe path or on the edge of a cliff. A faith that trusts in the eternal and sustaining presence of God more than our own ability to navigate the next step. This light to which Jesus lays claim is more than the light of understanding and guidance. Our verse concludes with the phrase, He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. At the very beginning of this gospel, in what is known as the prologue, John says of the eternal word of God, which to him was Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of people. Much like almost all living things need the light of the sun to live and grow, all life is created and sustained by the light of Christ. It is a life-giving light. Okay, let's take a look at the, the other key insight into Jesus that is afforded us by our reading this morning. Following his outrageous, seemingly hubristic, possibly insane claim about being the light of the world, Jesus got into a legal debate with the Pharisees about true and false witness and true and false judgment. And a natural place for the Pharisees to go. Their legal minds just made that a natural course of conversation or debate. In the process of that debate, however, Jesus clarified for them and for us 
an important aspect of the nature of his relationship with the Father. He says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, referring to himself, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Did you hear that? I do nothing on my own authority. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. How does that sit with you? How does that make you feel? What's your instinctive first response? Well, my initial response was to ignore it entirely. I liked the first part a lot, the light of the world stuff. That was great. But when I forced myself to look beyond the light of the world part and look more closely at this part of our reading, I realized that it actually made me uncomfortable. So I asked myself, why? Why does this make you uncomfortable, James? Whereupon I had a very intelligent conversation with myself. I realized, among other things probably, that it challenged some of my assumptions about, and about his place in the Godhead. See, having been brought up in the West, where all I've ever known is, is democracy, I have had a certain egalitarianism built into my subconscious. Everyone's equal. It is wrong that one person or group of people dominate another. And that is more than a cultural value. It's also a spiritual value. We are equally sinful and equally loved by God. These are spiritual truths, powerful spiritual truths. But it's not, it's not a great leap from there to assume the same for, sort of equality is intrinsic to who God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are. That assumption, however, wouldn't be based upon what we've just read here or other places in Scripture. Jesus chose full submission to the Father as his rightful and necessary place. For the theologically inclined among us, it might be tempting to take this frequently overlooked passage, use it to tweak our Christology and Trinitarian theology, and call it a worthwhile Sunday. However, I'm not sure that's the primary point of what we learn about Jesus here. I think this is meant to lead us elsewhere. The more profitable direction to take here is made quite clear in our epistle reading. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul takes the theme of Jesus' humble obedience and expands on it and what we are to take away from it. In verse 7 and following, Paul says of Jesus that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of humans, and found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus' humble obedience to the will of the Father didn't just include the things he chose to say or refrain from saying or do or refrain from doing. Because Jesus' most important act of humble obedience was that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when knowing what was coming, he prayed that remarkable prayer. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There, Jesus, having expressed his own will, let this cup pass from me, submitted to the Father's will. Nevertheless, not my own will. So here we have the nature and the extent of Jesus' humble obedience to the Father clearly laid out for us. But what do we do with it? Well, Paul is equally clear about that. What does he say? 
Be like Jesus. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let me read that again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If your growing understanding of the nature of Jesus doesn't significantly change the way you relate to others, especially those closest to you, your theology has no value. It's not worth the books you read, the sermons you listen to, or the mental energy you expend on it. And I refer you to James chapter 2 for further reflection on that. Humble obedience to the will of God, following diligently in the footsteps of Jesus, sacrificially serving God and others, are central to the life of Christian discipleship. Now, before we continue to our final point in the conclusion, I must pause to address the issue of harm inflicted on people by forcing them into positions of subservience. Despite our democratic and Christian values of egalitarianism, far too often, domination and oppression of the other continues unabated. Visible minorities, other religious groups, the socially and economically disadvantaged, and women, so often women. It was just over a year ago that we were confronted by the terrible sin of racial injustice perpetrated by those in power. We as Canadians and the Anglican Church continue to grapple with our nation's and our church's legacy and continuing attitudes towards our First Nations. And there are still those, especially in the church, who insist on the subordination of women. While all these moments of explicit oppression elicit in us us outrage, for they are outrageous, it is the implicit and unspoken forms of oppression that are the most effective in keeping such people in their place. So let me be crystal clear on this point. There can be no virtue or value in forcing someone else into a position of humble obedience. Humble obedience must be a choice which means a person must have sufficient personal liberty to have the freedom to make such a choice. So we must touch again on the theme of social justice. If we want everyone to be able to choose to serve one another in humility, we must first do everything in our power to clear away the systems and circumstances that currently oppress people based on gender, race, religion, and economic status so they can have the freedom to choose that humble obedience and service that Jesus modeled for us and called us to emulate. You will forgive my anger. I believe it's a godly anger. Finally, let's bring this back full circle and ask one last question about what Jesus meant by being the light of the world. How did and does Jesus' light shine so brightly that it is able to light the entire world? The hint is in Jesus' words. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. 
In very rabbinic style, this phrase has more than one allusion. The most, obvi most obvious allusion was the immediate context, the festival of lights about which we've already spoken. Lamps and torches were lit and raised up on the walls to allow the light to cast a greater, a further glow. But there's another allusion to these words. Jesus stated it explicitly in his encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said to Nicodemus, as Moses is lifted up, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is a reference back to that curious story of the poisonous snakes that beset the Israelites in Numbers chapter 21. The cure was brought about by elevating a bronze snake on a pole so people could see it and live rather than die. Jesus appropriated that story from the past as a prophecy of his own being lifted up on the cross, which would have similar spiritual healing and life-giving power. Now, in human terms, we tend to think of being lifted up in terms of elevation, promotion, positive recognition. Whether it's a promotion at work, elevation to higher political office, or the fame of, some, of being somehow special or outstanding in a given area of endeavor, or these days, the fame for being famous. The idea of being lifted up has almost universally positive connotations. However, here in the story of Jesus, being lifted up means humiliation, agonizing pain, and ultimate self-sacrifice. Following the terrifying path of humble obedience, Jesus in the garden submitted his will to the fathers and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is how Jesus was a light to the entire world. And that is the kind of humble, self-sacrificing obedience and service that each one of us are called to as his disciples. Beloved, how brightly does your light shine? Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.